And this Go. ball in the air, deep right center Go. field. Two-run home run, Trevor Story. Way back, Myers, watch it go Chuck Nasty. Two-run home run, David Dahl. And Nolan drives this high in the air, deep left field. Take a good look, you won't see it for long. Welcome into the DNVR Rockies podcast presented by Mile High Green Cross. Sign up for their loyalty program and receive 20% off your entire purchase once per month. Make sure to tag them and us when you get something from them. I'm your host, Drew Creaseman. With me on this one is our guy, Patrick Lyons, and we will be discussing a baseball game. Uh, so that's pretty cool. We haven't actually done that in quite a while, though it was uh, a baseball game that was played nearly 10 years ago. And it is one of the most famous baseball games in the history of the Colorado Rockies. Took place on April 17th, 2010. We did a live viewing of it on Monday at 3 p.m. The schedule got mixed around a little bit. So sorry for anybody who missed it or got a late start. But a part of our DNVR watches program that's included. Uh, Avs and Nuggets games and us watching the Ken Burns baseball documentary and for some reason Love is Blind on Netflix. Um, We have (laughs) finally gotten to go back and watch an old Rockies game and so we get to discuss one and Patrick it sure was a a special game and going back and watching it it, there were a lot of fun little nuggets and details and, and treats that we get to dive into here. It was a game. You're right. Like you said, that we watched and it was a real game that actually counted. So, you know, say what you will about the the spring training games that uh, went down earlier in this month and at the end of February, but those didn't count. This one did. So I think in a lot of ways, it was just as good as one of the final Rockies spring training games uh, of the season. So it was a, a very exciting game to watch. Uh, I was not watching at the time as I still lived in New Jersey. Although, you know, anytime you're watching a game that was televised on TBS, there is a sense of maybe I was watching, maybe I was just flipping through basic cable and this might have popped up on my screen. Twitter wasn't uh, the be all end all as far as getting updates like you got to turn over to TBS. You got to turn on uh, the network to see Ubaldo. He's in the sixth. He's going late. Um, So, again, I, I viewed this really for the first time ever and it was you know, really exciting. It, it was a fantastic game. Uh, I, I think on, on both sides, it was relatively close Four zero. Rockies got those runs early, but yeah, it was, uh, it was really exciting. And there was, there was a lot of people following us using our hashtag DNVR watches on Twitter that were really kind of enjoying it and going through the, going through each and every pitch and each and every inning as Ubaldo got that much closer towards the no hitter. Yeah, I was actually wondering if that was going to be the case, and I purposefully didn't ask you ahead of time because I wanted to hear your story live on the podcast. And, um, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's that's going to bring a fun perspective to the conversation. I, in 2010, was still a student at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and 
distinctly recall skipping class because this was a day game and Ubaldo Jimenez was on the mound. And those were literally games that I circled back then. One of the things that's always bothered me is, you know, there are always narratives about the Rockies that bother me. (laughs) Themes of the podcast. Um, And one of them has always been that this was kind of a a weird no-hitter in the history of of no-nos when you look back on some of the great names. Certainly, I could see that. Um, Also, the fact that he walked six guys, and we'll get more into that. Uh, So it, it sometimes is put into this strange category because it wasn't quite as impressive as it could have been. And because Ubaldo Jimenez's career wasn't quite as impressive as I, I think a lot of us thought it was ultimately going to be. He was appointment television that year. And of course I remember that so vividly because, uh, you know, normally he pitched at night and so it wasn't a problem. It was what I did when I got home from school, I watched Rockies baseball to zero people's surprise. And when I saw that this game was going to be on, you know, in a class, I didn't have a final or a big test or anything that day, no contest. So I stayed at home by myself downstairs, you know, probably in my pajamas, like a high school or high school, a college student, you know, eating hot pockets. And I watched every single pitch of this game And uh, by myself, and, you know, it was before I was on Twitter or anything like that. I just experienced it that way. Uh, I had a roommate at the time who was a big Cubs fan. And around the seventh inning, I just walked upstairs and said, uh, you might want to come see the end of this Rockies game with me. And he came downstairs (laughs) and and neither one of us said a word until, until it ended. That's got to feel pretty rewarding. Um, those those evening classes are obviously always hard to go to. Um, I mean, I imagine it was probably like a four o'clock or five o'clock class that evening, obviously because of the the um, difference in, in time zones. But those classes are, are hard to get to regardless. And so for you to have kind of made that choice to say, "Hey, it's appointment watching," you know, even if it even if something magical doesn't go down. Um, Jimenez will not let me down, and he definitely didn't. And so that was that. I'm sure planted the seed for you of like, okay, I got to really trust my instinct here uh, about baseball and particularly the Colorado Rockies because he certainly did deliver. And uh, I, I'm sure that was something you might not have let your roommate uh, down on uh, for the rest of the year. Like, hey, when I when I tell you something's gonna happen, something's gonna happen. Exactly. Right. Like, like, trust me on this one. Before we get into the game proper, there were a few uh, setup things I wanted to mention. Uh, there was a stat they said on the broadcast that I saw you also tweeted out that Yubato uh, had pitched six or more innings in 30 of his last 31 starts coming into this one. So that stretched back into 2009. Uh, I remember him finishing that season very, very strongly. Uh, as a part of the team that really should have beat the Phillies in the NLDS that year, that that 2009 Rockies team was probably the most talented ever, um, maybe the 2018 team. But uh, I thought that one was really interesting. And then the one that kind of blew me away that they said that he had held cleanup hitters to 147 
the year before, a batting average of 147. Just another reminder that uh, this didn't come out of nowhere by any means. In fact, by people who were paying close attention, an eventual no-hitter for Ubaldo Jimenez felt inevitable. Yeah, and if you even take the playoffs into consideration, that series against the Phillies, while he only threw five innings in game one of that series, he would later go on and, and throw seven innings in that start. And uh, when you include the no-hitter, Jimenez had 12 more consecutive starts of six innings or more. In fact, most of them were seven or more innings. Only two of the next uh, 12 starts were less than seven innings. So. You're right. Like he was just dominant at that point. Get the ball in his hand, just fire. Uh, it's it's actually kind of amazing with how hard he threw. Now it's it's obviously a lot more, a lot more normal to see guys you know still bringing it up there in, in the the high 90s late in the game. But he did it with really high pitch counts, and he never needed Tommy John surgery at any point in his career. That's that's very rare. That's rarefied air there. Not that not having Tommy John surgery is really something to pat yourself on the back. If you have Tommy John, again, doesn't necessarily mean you did anything wrong per se, but that's pretty amazing that he was throwing that fast, that long into it, into a single game. And he did it for so long that there wasn't, you know, uh, the, the using up of, of so many bullets as the saying goes that he would eventually need Tommy John surgery. He was, he was just a strong workhorse throughout the the entirety of his career. Yeah, there's an extraordinary irony about that word, and I'm really glad you used it because he was. And I I remember a season. I'm gonna have to look this one up. Um, where he had pitched like seven or eight innings in like ten consecutive games down the stretch for the Rockies, and he very rarely got complete games and he almost always threw a ton of pitches because he, he was such a strikeout guy. Um, but yeah, his career, like you said, was not derailed by Tommy John or any of the traditional things. It's largely held, um, that his career was derailed by finger blister issues. And then, uh, you know, he, he did end up getting a little bit, of success back with the Orioles in, in the bullpen at the end. But one last note, at least from me, before we get into the actual game, just from that season, um, we talk a lot, or at least I try to talk a lot about game score. Uh, it's something I'm trying to get more and more into as we help our friend Manny Rondawa out and killing the win. And a lot of the reason as I look back on it is because of, Ubaldo Jimenez and to a large degree this season. Um, it could be argued that the no hitter was just as good as another game he threw that year. He had another complete game shutout, uh, came earlier in the year. Oh, no, I'm sorry, it came a little bit later in the year. It was, it was May, uh, May 31st against the Giants. He threw a complete game shutout, gave up four hits. Walked two, struck out nine. He he only struck out seven in the game we're discussing today, the no-no. Same number of pitches in both games. How about that? 128 pitches. But an 88-game score, according to baseball reference, where so you got to scale everything down a little bit. There's isn't up in the 90s like some of the others. Um, And an 86-game score for the one against the Giants. He also had a game score of 84 
in a game at St. Louis in October. He threw eight innings, gave up three hits, walked two, struck out ten. And then the next one on the list is a 77 uh, against Houston in May. So that would have been a back-to-back start against the Giants and the Astros, his second and fourth best starts of the year. That one, he went seven innings, gave up one hit, walked two, struck out four. Uh, and, and he's got a bunch of these for for to skip down to his 17th best game of the year, which got a game score of 64. It was at Minnesota. He threw eight innings. He gave up eight hits, but only one earned run, two walks, four strikeouts. Uh, he was he was just incredible that season. Yeah, the game score, you know, obviously invented by Bill James, is it's almost, uh, in a sense, like fantasy baseball. You know, if you if you play in leagues in which it's it's a point league, you know, guys get say uh, one point for a single, two points for a double, four for a homer, etc. And when they, you know, if they strike out uh, as a hitter, then you know they they lose a point, and you get you know you kind of move it around to to get a better idea. Uh, as far as how the overall game was, because even if you go, you know, one for four, you're like, oh, that's less than 300 in a small sample size like that. You might say you had a really bad game, but you hit a triple. So, okay. You got three bases for four at bats, which relatively speaking is okay. It's actually probably closer to average than below average. So this game score tries to capitalize on that. And as you mentioned, when you, when you factor in, you know, the six walks and the fact that he only had seven over the course of nine innings of the course of those 27 outs, you know, the, the walk number was, was, was a little high strikeouts were probably a little bit lower than, than a lot of those other starts he had throughout the course of the year. So overall, you know, he had a little bit of a luck in this, in this game. And there's, there's nothing wrong with getting a little bit of luck. I mean, all no hitters or all perfect games have almost a bit of that. There were a couple key plays in this game that we'll go into that preserved the no hitter. You know, all it takes is a ground ball with eyes to go up the middle and there's maybe a shift, which is more on your coaching staff than anything. And guy gets a hit and you now, now you have a one hitter, but you struck out 13 guys and you only walked one. That's a lot more impressive than the no hitter. If you're looking at the game score. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to balance there, but, And any way you really shake it up, you know, a no hitter and and the only one still in the franchise's history, say what you will about pitching at Coors Field. Again, there's another 81 games that's played in the other ballparks and the fact that it it hasn't happened before uh, and it hasn't happened since that day is is still, you know, still impressive and and still so remarkable for Baldo to, you know, have, have taken that ball for all 128 pitches that night. Yeah, and you know, since you were going through how game score works, I thought another good reference point would be uh, I wrote the article last year when Herman Marquez uh, at San Francisco threw his complete game shutout that that was probably the best pitched game all around in Rockies history, and game score would agree. Yep. His nine innings, he gave up the one hit, as we all know, little single through the left side, but he didn't walk anybody. And he struck out nine. So he got a game score of 94 for that performance. But like you said, 
This is about Ubaldo Jimenez and the only no-hitter in Rockies history to this point, and, and that's still super prestigious and worthy of uh, the conversation that we're going to jump into now. Let's get into the game. Uh, for uh, we're gonna, you know, if you're getting into the baseball game too, now's the time to crack open a Breck brew. If you didn't get to watch it with us and live tweet it with us, just while you're listening to this podcast, pretend you're watching the game. Good time for a hot peak IPA. It's an absolutely delicious beer. You can get it delivered to you by Drizzly. Uh, that you can, if you're in the area, you can get it delivered to you by Breck and by uh, DoorDash. There's all kinds of people out there doing the thing. Uh, so make sure you check in on that. Make sure you stock up. You get those 15-pack samplers from Breck Brew so you can try out all kinds of different stuff. You're going to have some time to, to experiment a little bit and maybe expand your horizons on your beer drinking taste. And Breck are the right people to do that with. Getting into the ball game, my first observation, leadoff hitter Carlos Gonzalez. How about that? Yeah, that was really interesting seeing that. It was, of course, you know, so early in his career, only, you know, just recently having coming come over in the, the Matt Holiday deal. That was that was a big talk at the early part of the game for the uh, Atlanta broadcasters. But it, it really, you know, makes you think about, you know, a guy like David Dahl, where he's so early on in his career, and we've seen him um, over the last year plus kind of hitting closer to the top of that lineup. But you got to think, all right, if his growth continues and he starts to make the progress that he's been and that continues, that you could be looking at another you know, cargo-like player hitting third in the lineup, using that mix of, of power and speed, obviously putting together a couple all-star campaigns and really being one of the faces of the franchise um, in the next you know, six to eight years. And to see cargo starting out that way is, is all the more interesting because he, he pretty much looks the same, you know, uh, might not have the same, uh, muscle composition. And he, he looks uh, a little bit younger, of course, and a little more sinewy uh, in, in the face, but overall that's, that's cargo there. And to see him leading off is, is an interesting reminder about, you know, where players can begin their careers. We know where they end, but it's it was cool seeing him there at, at at the at the front of his career. Yeah, there was a lot of trying to figure out how to best employ cargo at the time, and he had so many tools. And this was before injuries had sapped the athleticism, and so it made some sense. You know, he had really good speed. He played some center field at times. He was in left in this one. A few other interesting notes on cargo this year. He would go on to lead the league in hits with 197. Win the batting title, hitting 336, and led the league in total bases with 381. He came in third in MVP voting, won a gold glove and a silver slugger. He was not a member of the All-Stars for the National League. No, altogether put put up 5.9 war, and, and most of that was strictly on that offensive side, and Again, as only a third-year player, really almost in his, his second to second-and-a-half season because he only played 85 yeah. games with Oakland in, in 08, 89, and, and 2009. He was, he was making the league minimum, and the dude was third in MVP voting. Gold glove, silver slugger, like he said, only was beaten out by, by two all-time greats, Joey Votto and Albert Pujols. 
there's an interesting story that Tracy Ringlesby has told on this podcast about, you know, Carlos Gonzalez, when he was dealt to the Rockies, was still kind of seen as a prospect. As you mentioned, he had 80-some games with the A's, but, you know, he had been traded already now twice. He, he come up with the Diamondbacks organization, and there was, you know, real questions about whether or not this guy was going to figure it out, and they had, the Rockies had had to send him down to AAA. They were hoping maybe they got this young guy who was ready to go, and then they said, there's really some some things to work out here still. They sent him down to AAA, and as the story goes, uh, Jim Tracy called him back up. When, when he was called back up, Jim Tracy sat him down in the office and said, that's it. You're not going back down again. So figure it out now. And, and, and you know, basically, where no more of that. You, you better have got it. And yeah, he finished that season absolutely blisteringly and came back and did all of these things. Got the game started with a double. I always held that Cargo at his best when he was really going well was hitting that exact double, which he hit twice in this game, uh, the other way into the opposite field gap. Just a thing of beauty. And, and how great is it that the very first hitter of the game scored a run, and as it turned out, that's all the Rockies would need. Yeah, he, he added the in, insurance runs too with, with his double there. Uh, I think yeah. it was in the in the fourth, like you said, kind of going the opposite way, just playing it natural, and um, it's something that that David Dahl said in in 2018, in, in in the heyday of the Rockies, when when Hall- on holiday, coincidentally, came and he said, "Look, the homers will come. Just do your thing, make good contact, and those doubles will slowly turn into homers." And they they absolutely did for for Cargo there. He he wound up hitting 34 on, on the season. Uh, but like you said, led the league in, in hits and um, had an equal amount of home runs and doubles. So, you know, he was on the offensive side. He definitely was the player of the game for, for Colorado. Absolutely. Um, uh, you do also have to like as a part of that while we're on the offensive side, the other uh, kind of weird, fun, interesting members of Rockies history, Brad Hopp and Ian Stewart. Uh, Brad Hopp, much beloved in Rockies community. Ian Stewart was a perplexing figure in his time in Colorado. He had all the tools, man, except probably the one that matters the most. But that guy could pick it. And when he wasn't coming out of his shoes on a curveball in the dirt, he could hit the ball a mile. And it, it is amazing to think that in 2010, the consensus among Rockies fans was probably this guy, Ian Stewart. He's the third baseman of the future. Yeah, it came right off the heels of Garrett Atkins. And, you know, like you said, kind of n- never really lived up to maybe the hopes and expectations, especially getting, you know, selected in the draft so early. But a lot of fans, you know, probably might only know his name as he was the key piece that ended up bringing DJ LeMahieu to to Colorado uh, eventually a, a couple of years down the line after that. And the interesting thing with Hop is, you know, uh, I mentioned it on Twitter, just how consistent he was over a four year stretch where he was hitting, you know, low to mid 20 home runs every season, about 90 RBIs batting, you know, about 285, 290. And he went three for four in this game to bring his average up to 393. But, it would it would be later in August where he would actually be released by Colorado and eventually uh, signed with Tampa Bay and 
at that point, the wheels kind of started falling off for Hop, and he never really could kind of put together a, a good season, played part of, of 2011 the next year with the Padres. Um, was was out of the game in, in, in 2012, um, a, a little time in, in the minor leagues with the Rangers, 17 games with the Angels, and that was a wrap. So, again, nice to see him kind of go out and, and, and have such a, a – a good game and, and, and a historic game for the franchise. But soon after this game, um, the Brad Hop that, that many fans know and loved uh, started to disappear, unfortunately for him. Yeah, he, he exists in, uh, I don't know how long a line of a tradition it is, but there are certainly a, a <laughs> number of these that came to define, particularly the end of the Dan O'Dowd era. My early years in the blogging world, a lot was spent on this question of why do the Rockies always hold on to these guys past their prime when they've got a chance to trade them. Uh, Brad Hop became kind of the poster child for that, that they ended up just kind of having to release him. And as you laid it out, it just you know got nothing out of him and nobody else was able to get much out of him after that. And it was really too bad because he was such a good, maybe never great, but a really good player for a solid chunk of time for the Rockies during some important years. He had, he was a huge part of that run in 2007, some of the biggest hits in that. Uh, but yeah, to, to see the way it ended up was, was really too bad. And they probably did have uh, an opportunity to trade him at, this 2010 deadline and didn't uh, also Justin Morneau was a guy who ended up being a kind of famous part of that as well. Um, yeah. That, that okay. off season probably yep. would have, that off season probably would have been the point to do that, especially he was on the final year of a contract too. And if you, you know, there wasn't really any interest in, let's say bringing him back for the 2011 season, then you got a trade while his stock was high. He was an all-star in, in 2009 and was, you know, was about to, to get into free agency and probably thought there was going to be a decent payday for him out there. Um, so if, if there was no match, then, you know, you go ahead and, and, and you make a trade like that, especially because there was, you know, a decent amount of depth in Colorado's outfield. We, we didn't see Seth Smith in this game. Um, but he, you know, would go on to have a, a typical Seth Smith type season um, at, at 27 years old. But but Spielborgs was was still around at, at 30 years old. You know, Melvin Moore was playing some time in the outfield. And again, this was the the opportunity, like you said um, about Jim Tracy talking to Cargo. This was Cargo's coming out season. So you could have said, well, you know what, we got Fowler right there in center. Cargo is uh, he's going to take a major step forward and in left. And so, you know what, right field, we can just do piecemeal. We could do a platoon. Let's trade while the stock is high, get rid of Brad hop and, and, you know, bring help somewhere else along the line in the off season. And as you mentioned, it, that's, that's kind of been a, a unfortunate trend that they have, have not done that. They have not traded when stock is high. And unfortunately they, uh, they don't even get 25 cents on the dollar in this case for hop. He was just straight up released on August 25th of 2010. Yeah, and and no one would have cared if the team hadn't collapsed down the stretch and not fulfilled their ultimate potential. Anyway, it would have been a it would have been a footnote in history if this 2010 team had finished as strong as they started. But that's a whole other series of what ifs that we can get into 
another time. I think those are pretty much all of the offensive highlights. Let's get where we need to get. That's on the mound. And I want to go back to the very first inning because I had forgotten that the first batter of the game, Nate McClouth, who, by the way, was a phenomenal fielder. It was a fun, kind of fun, especially when you know what's going to happen to watch him run some balls <laughs> down in center field himself for the Braves. Uh, but he got got by a young man who had himself a defensive game. We, we all remember the play in the seventh. And we'll get to that in a minute. But he, he started off. He was maybe able to cool all the uh, you know tension down right away by first play of the game. Just a screaming liner out to the right center field gap. Dexter, perfect jump, runs it down. Great catch. Yeah, his his legs here were was a definite strength in this game where, you know, especially going to his right like that, which is a little bit harder to do uh, when you're when you're kind of entrenched in the right center gap like that and, you know, playing pull, but, you know, Fowler just that was kind of his deal out there in center field. It was one of the reasons why he's he's kind of in a in somewhat of a a line or a lineage of really good and, and somewhat underrated center fielders that Colorado has had. You know, we've, we know how large totally. the expanse is out there and, and at Coors field and how large it is and, and how much of a toll it can take on your body. But, you know, there's, there's been a fair share of, of center fielders that have been, you know, uh, relatively overlooked, underrated, um, regardless of what they, they did elsewhere uh, after their Rockies career. Um, you know, Juan Pierre, Willie Tavares, Dexter Fowler, of course, you know, these are, these are guys that, you know, played one of the toughest positions in the game, right? All, all major league ballparks we think of as being the same. No third base is any more difficult than any other third base around the game, right? right? Left field is, is only a lot easier at Fenway park in theory, right? Cause you do have to play those caroms that that's very challenging, no doubt. Um, center field at Fenway is, is obviously very difficult with the triangle out there, but for the most part, all positions everywhere, it's the same diamond, but center field in at Coors field in Denver is pretty unique unto itself with how large it is there over the course of, you know, 81 games at home at altitude and Fowler definitely, you know, holds a, holds a big spot. And I think a lot of Rockies fans heart and, and and being underappreciated for what he did out there defensively. And it was cool to see that in this game, you can really say, wow, yeah, Dexter Fowler was, was really solid defensively. He really was. You can say, wow. In fact, Ubaldo did. Uh, that's exactly what he said yeah. right after that. Game. It's one of my favorite Rockies gifts moments of all time. It's just so absolutely clear. And it's such a subdued and measured reaction because you can see Jimenez just staying calm the whole game and i think some of that was the the walks that he was giving up we'll, we'll get into that i want to stay with the defense for just a minute but that he just turns around and goes wow <laughs> like yeah wow indeed <laughs> um but i have to agree with you and in fact i would suggest that dexter fowler is the most underrated center fielder in rocky's history i don't know that there are any stats to back up the claim, but I think he had the best mix of tools to do the job. And, you know, he didn't steal a ton of bases because he didn't great get a great first step. He wasn't always the best at reading pitchers and he could take just a little bit longer to get going. He had pretty long legs, 
But once he got going, that dude could cover ground. And unlike Juan Pierre and Willie Tavares, the other guys you mentioned who I, I agree with you, this is that's the right uh, class of guys to separate. Um, Dexter Fowler had a pretty good arm. Uh, Tavares, Juan Pierre had a terrible arm, and, and Tavares was okay. <laughs> but Dexter Fowler had a, a pretty solid arm, and uh, could really run those balls down in the gap. The only question was, would he get the right start? If he got the right first step, Dexter Fowler was the best center fielder defensively in Rockies history. Um, and he was always a, a, a fan favorite, but I, I don't know that his defense ever quite got enough credit, especially because of the way, you know, we measure center field at, at Coors now. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, it's funny because in 2010, he actually, you know, led the league in triples. He led um, National League with, with 14 right. triples. So kind of over a longer distance, you got to see his speed because you're right. Fowler is 6'5", so he's a he's a big dude, whereas yeah. Willie Tavares was six foot even, and I think Juan Pierre was 5'11", standing on his tippy toes. So right. <laughs> again, right. there, there, there's a big difference in those guys. So, you know, to go just from, you know, your, your, your lead at first base to second base, you got to turn it up that, you know, that much quicker, you know, Ricky Henderson, you see it immediately that sprint speed, uh, how low he was kind of in that, that crouch getting ready to take off as he let off the of first base, you know, that right. was really to kind of, you know, accentuate the, the, um, his his legs and, and get that turnover going that much quicker and it was harder for Fowler because he was taller but you know again going going from home to third that's where you saw his speed or going from right center to left center like we did in this game that's where you saw you know how how special and how quick Dexter Fowler could actually be yeah he he, he yeah he's a special player I, I I never thought he got enough credit another group of people who never gets enough credit is Bojo's Pizza. It's the best pizza. I'm saying it. It's the best pizza in the world. I, it just is. It's it's Colorado yeah. pizza. It's unique pizza. But it's not like weird ass pizza. Like, you know, some people who try to make their <laughs> own thing and take pizza way too far. And like, okay, you don't need to be putting. I don't know. I kind of like pasta on pizza. That was going to be my example. I don't hate that. But, you know, that's, for, that's an occasional <laughs> You, you want like a cheese in your crust too, do you? I uh, no, <laughs> I, I do. I, How far I, are you taking this? I know, <laughs> getting crazy with it. Um, hey, I'm from Jersey. The, I, I know a good. I know. I know a good pizza is, and Bojo's is true. good pizza. Come on, it's, that it just, stamp of approval from a guy from Jersey. Come on, right there. Come on, come on, come on. What are you Forget doing? About it. Come on, I'm over here. I don't. What, I don't. What about? I don't. And so there's also great <laughs> news because right now. Uh, Bojo's is offering 30% off their takeout orders when you ask for it. Uh, if you tag them and us, we will make sure we get out the word. You know, we're, we're trying to help everybody out. They're doing takeout. They're doing delivery. Uh, Bojo's goes on at all six locations. They can get a takeout situation good for you. So they'll, they'll hook you up with 30% off of that takeout order when you ask for it. So just make sure uh, that, you know, you say, hey, my friends at DNVR said, 30% off on the takeout order. I heard it was the best pizza in the world. They literally said that. So I'm going to check this out uh, and, and make sure make sure you get honey with it. Don't don't drive off. Don't, don't, don't get that Bojo's pizza. And not have, if you've got honey at home, that's okay. But I get theirs. It's, if you got good, really good honey at home, 
it will do, but you need honey for the crust. It's a rule. It, it's, it is necessary. All yeah, right. I, I was, I was going to jump in with yeah. more on Bojo's, but oh, I, I was going to say they're good, man. <laughs> they're, they're good. We love Bojo's. We do. Honestly, think of it like this. 30% off is two slices free in your order of your pie. Two ways of a pie. That's close to 30%. So you order, yeah. uh, you order two pies for you and your family. Four of those slices are free. Boom. That half That's a pizza saying. is free. Boom. Half a pizza Boom. is free in that, that sense. So yeah, definitely hit them up. At that point, they're basically paying you. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's get up on the mound where, <laughs> believe it or not, we've talked all this time and not really gotten into the nitty gritty details. Oh, you know what? Nope. Can't do it just yet. We did the Bojos. There's one other defensive thing we got to talk about. And I, did you know the Miguel Olivo pickoff was coming? Did you know that was a part of this? No, no, I okay. did not. What was your reaction to that? Oh, it was just slick, just super no. slick. I mean, you know, we we texted back and forth talking about you know no hitters and some some good ones and some awful ones. Even you know a couple guys losing games, even though they they threw a no hitter or at least did not give up a hit uh, over the course of eight innings. And you know when you have a no hitter, you also want it to be a shutout too. It's kind of like oh you threw a no hitter but you gave up a run or two. That was a, a point in the game right there. Chipper Jones up. 2-0 count, guy on first and second base. I mean, that's a huge spot. He had or he had already you know taxed his arm. He was up to about fifty pitches at that point. So I mean that 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 does not look good. You know, Chipper's coming through. He's due at that point. All right, maybe you got a tie ball game there. Maybe even lose the lead potentially. But for Olivo to see that, no, notice that Kawakami is 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 dancing too far off of second base, trying to score, knowing that he's not very fast. And he's like, Chipper's going to put one in, you know, uh, in between short and third base. Like he likes to go the opposite way. And I need to score on this. So I really need a good secondary lead. Olivo goes, okay, you get one. You, he, he gave it to him on the first pitch, mm-hmm. gave him a false sense of security. And then mm-hmm. the second one, boom, fires it down. And that, man, that, that made my, that made my head spin. That was, that was something that was a big play. Yeah, they were ready for it. Tulo was there on the spot too, ready for it. They knew it was coming. I don't know that it was like a planned pitch out to to do late, but if it wasn't, Ubaldo Jimenez threw the exact right, like a 98-mile-an-hour fastball tailing away so that Olivo could just stand up as he was catching it. And it, it was just, yeah, you know, Fowler gets – the the noted you know defensive play uh, seems like almost every no hitter even the great ones Matt Cain's, uh you know uh, what was it was it Mark Burley and um, Wise the the catch there uh, Dwayne yeah. Wise yeah Dwayne Wise uh, there's almost always a great play and Dexter Fowler typically is credited with that in this game but Miguel Olivo throwing behind a guy. I don't care if it's the pitcher. I don't care if it's a little league player throwing behind a guy at second base to bail out his dude. Uh, as you said, with, with a hall of famer at the plate, that's a huge moment. Oh, for sure. Fowler's play may have preserved the no hitter, but Olivo's play preserved the no hitter and reduced the stress of a close game because 
they, you know, uh, Colorado again, goes up, they got a nice comfortable lead at that point. Now Baldo can kind of just focus on pitching and he's not necessarily even worried about the game per se. Right. Uh, it doesn't put any pressure on Jim Tracy to say, Oh, you're gotten over a hundred pitches here. Um, you know, we might need to, to go to, to Fuentes in the bullpen or something like that or street, I should right. say. Um, but again, that's a, that's a play that really alters this game in a major way. And yeah, it doesn't get talked about a lot. It was, that was super impressive. And it wasn't, it was not a pitch out. I went back to look to see, I was like, was that, it wasn't called a ball or a strike. Uh, I was able to find it online that it was called a ball. You know, the umpire of course just waited uh, to make his call after the play. Um, and you, you see where Oliva was set up and Jimenez missed it by, you know, half a baseball. And it was just, just right there for Oliva to make that move. So I think I think that's probably what Olivo was hoping for. Um, shade a little bit left um, on the left side of the infield, possibly go go outside, and that gives me an opportunity now to really gun him out down there at second base. So a couple things that's happening great. on that play. It's really impressive, mm-hmm. and, and you get to understand like how much a catcher is the field general in that one singular play. Yeah, and you know he he had to be a field general a, a couple of times. You know. As we've alluded to, and now we're going to get into, Ubaldo really struggled in the first, especially first five innings of this game uh, at times. He wasn't hitting his spots uh, particularly, and we'll get to this out of the windup, but you know, he was throwing such gnarly stuff, but we had this, there's probably more mound visits in this than most no hitters. You would think it's at least on that side uh, early on. I thought a, uh, uh, interesting sort of side narrative emerged. Uh, Troy Gloss is kind of all over this game in an interesting way. And the first one was the, that Ubaldo's second walk of the game. So we walked about her in the first. So you knew that like, there was no chance at a perfecto ever. Like that was never <laughs> even on the table. Um, but he threw this pitch, man, this hundred mile an hour fastball with tail on it that I thought clipped the outside part of the zone on a three, two count that ended up being, uh, the second walk of the game for Ubaldo. And I, I couldn't help, you know, sometimes I do feel frustrated by, you know, like a sort of lack of progress on that issue. But then to watch this and see there was absolutely zero discussion about it. There was no box on the screen. There was no replay. There was none of that. I was like, well, at least all of that stuff is pretty ubiquitous now. And we know we're moving slowly toward that electronic stuff. But I couldn't help but note now, the rest of them, he was pretty damn wild. He was missing some spots, but uh, that, that was one where I was like, mm, man, maybe in, a, in an electronic strike zone world, we'd replace one of those six walks with a K. <laughs> but butterfly effect, Drew, you, you, you change a walk to a strikeout, now maybe he gives up two hits. Yeah, maybe he strikes out nine and- guys instead of seven. But that's that's the true. butterfly effect. That's that's kind of the beauty of this game, because like you said, you know, the, the first four or five innings were not pretty. I remember I remember it because like it was yesterday. Actually, no, it was only a couple hours ago. Uh, we record this <laughs> uh, to, uh, Monday afternoon. It was 10 but, years. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Um, DNVR flashback uh, yeah. as we go back and look at this game. But I remember thinking this is this is not a very good no hitter. Uh, this isn't, you know, that uh, impressive per se. I know I can't do that. Um, if you give me a hundred tries, I'm not going to even come even close. But 
what really becomes Im impressive is how he changed things. And I know you're going to talk in a second about that change. And it's, again, you things go your way. Some some luck falls your way. And, hey, you, you don't give up a hit over the course of four innings, even though there was a lot of traffic, even though maybe you got lucky here or there. Um, but, all right, whatever. No hits through four innings. That happens a lot. It's what you do now going forward right. that keeps that no hitter going. That was the impressive part for me was that he was able to keep it going and he only got stronger as the game went on. It's just perfect that you bring up the butterfly effect because it leads me to my next point, And that is in the fifth inning. So as you just laid it out, okay, whatever, you know, guys have got, I want Juan Nicasio in like his second outing ever in New York against the Yankees through like four no hit, maybe even perfect innings to start the game. And it was kind of like, huh? But you know, that didn't last because <laughs> <laughs> hitters make adjustments and, and great hitters make adjustments, but great pitchers make adjustments too. We'll get to that. But in the fifth inning, he walked the leadoff batter, Chipper Jones. Um, then he balked, which was interesting. Um, the maybe the only sign all game of of him being. I mean, obviously he wasn't hitting certain spots, but he was in a rhythm. He was getting on the mound. He was throwing the ball hundred miles an hour. Every one of his breaking pitches had ridiculous movement, and maybe every other pitch was perfectly located. So in a way, he'd been like super effectively wild. I think the broadcast even said at this point, I think it was right after this, right after the Bach, that he had thrown more balls than strikes to this point in the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, effectively the, wild would be would be that phrase, yes. Yeah, um, so because of the balk, a ground out from Brian McCann meant that for the first, and as it turned out, only time of the game, the Braves got a runner to third, but they didn't just have a runner at third base. They had a runner at third with one out. And again, my guy Troy Gloss <laughs> back at the plate in an interesting moment. And this is a super interesting what-if butterfly effect thing because – Ubaldo didn't have his best strikeout stuff in this game. Seven, he's got 13 strikeout games this season, multiple double-digit ones. Um, he, he did get the strikeout here, but if Gloss hits a, uh, the infield was back. They had a four-run lead. They're not worried about that. If he hits a ground ball to shorty, it's a fly ball to medium deep anywhere in the outfield. This could have been, if we assume nothing else changed, we assume no butterfly effect. Um, this could have been a no hitter with a run surrendered <laughs> very easily. Yeah, very, very easily. Yeah. He, he, he made uh, a big pitch there, you know, to, to gloss. And I think that was kind of the, the, the beginning where he realized, okay, I have something and I, I can't lose it. I can't lose that. I, I, I need to shove now. And he was able to do that with gloss. And then he got the, the weak ground out to, you know, Escobar, um, that, uh, for the next batter. And after that, I think he only faced one more than the minimum. So it was almost, you know, one, two, three inning, uh, everyone after that, except the fifth, uh, with a walk to Hayward to start the inning. So that you're right. That was a, that was a huge spot right there. And I think that's probably the moment where everyone goes, okay, all right, we got through the, the hard stuff. We we've been through the weeds. Now, if this is going to go down, 
it's it's all on Ubaldo. He's got to make the adjustment in order to to go the rest of the way because enough has kind of enough luck has gone his way. Now it, it, it he's got to be almost perfect. And after that walk to Hayward in the top uh, bottom of the fifth, he was perfect going forward. He pretty much was. And you know who else is perfect and essential. We've been hearing a lot lately about you know things that are essential, things that are non-essential. It's a word floating around in the world. Taking care of your teeth is essential. It is absolutely vital to your health. It's really important that you do that in these times. If you schedule a cleaning x-ray and exam with Green Mountain Dental, they will hook you up with a free Sonicare toothbrush. It's a really a necessity to have one of those tools in your life to keep your mouth clean. Make sure you tag us when you get your free Sonicare from Green Mountain. They've been a phenomenal partner of ours throughout the years. We love them. They love us. They love sports. So make sure that you get a cleaning x-ray and exam scheduled. You pick up your free Sonicare toothbrush. You tag us. Let us know how it went. Let us know what sporting event you talked about. Now you'll have all this information about the Ubaldo Jimenez no-hitter, including my favorite part of it. This is... <laughs> I, 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 lo- and I, I love this because, uh, again, Bob Apodaca is a character in Rocky's history who's never been given enough credit, who fans always were having a hard time with. It's tough to pitch at Coors Field. We've seen it. There's no pitching coach in the history of the Colorado Rockies who's beloved. That's, that's you know, there's not like, oh, yeah, they were great under that guy. Um, and Dak. You, you can make the case that. You can make the only you can make the case the only um, <laughs> pitching coach that's ever been loved uh, by Rockies fans is Bud Black, but he's the manager. Yeah. So sorry, doesn't count. <laughs> right. Doesn't count. <laughs> that's exactly right. And how brutal is that? <laughs> now that they've well before last season pitched pretty well, um, all the credit goes to the manager <laughs> and Darren yeah. Holmes. You know, is on the outs. So um, yeah, it's a tough gig, man. It's a tough job, but you know. Bob Apodaca is one of the first people I met when I sort of started meeting these, these people. And I met him in Grand Junction. He was roaming around as a pitching instructor, and he was out there right after the draft of a young man named John Gray when he was working with the Grand Junction team. And he gave me a very long and extensive interview about uh, pitchers up and down the system at the time. Patrick, you'll love this. I didn't have a, a smartphone or a recorder or anything at the time. I had a yellow legal notepad and <laughs> a pen, and that's all, all the quotes I could get. I, I just had to write them that way. I didn't have any audio to go back to. Uh, it was the before times, man. Um, and then did you did you say, okay, now just say that again one more time. I missed a couple yeah. words in between. That's what you would, would do, right? No. <laughs> never written so fast in my life. Uh and, and he also invited me into the dugout. So it was the first time I'd been inside a professional dugout. That's where we uh, held the interview. Um, and I did talk to him a little bit about this moment afterwards. And I I just said, man, that was the ballsiest move in the middle of a no-hitter to make a fundamental, a pretty dramatic change and tell a guy to just stop 
pitching out of the windup. Um, ballsy. I mean, smooth, but the manscaped <laughs> that smooth ballsy. <laughs> no, no, it didn't go. It could have gone rough. It could have been non manscaped. It could have gone the other way and been, and you, cause if he comes out and now he's only thrown out of the stretch and the first guy in the sixth inning gets a hit or whatever, or, or he, he throws a fastball in at 94. Cause it feels weird to be thrown out of the stretch with nobody on base. Who knows? You know, you're going to be the guy who, got in the head of a pitcher who was throwing a no hitter and told him to do something else. And it's really easy to say in hindsight, like, dude, look at how much he was missing his spots when he was thrown out of the windup. And like, he very clearly once, but was it because there were guys on base? Was it because of the stretch or did he just focus a little bit better? Was he just getting lucky? Did it have nothing to do with that? Um, but as you kind of said earlier, it worked. It locked in, and I, I think he should get the credit. I, I think it's real. Like I said, it's easy in hindsight to look back, but I think, yeah, it was it, it was a mechanical thing that he had a little bit better command coming out of the stretch, and that allowed him to attack those guys. And you just look at the quality of pitches he was throwing from that point on. He was getting real ugly swings out of, all-star and hall of fame caliber dudes. He was throwing 90 mile an hour splitters that were just falling off the table. He's painting up and away with two seamers at 98. It was, that was the Ubaldo Jimenez that we had seen for most of the rest of that year. That's what's so funny is like he had been better for most of the rest of that season than he was in the first five innings who he was six, seven, eight, and nine that's the guy we were used to. It it definitely took a lot of testicular fortitude, Manscaped, uh, to to make that call for uh, for Jimenez so to go to the stretch. Wasn't it? <laughs> Didn't they yes, get big into that uh, for a while? That was a big thing. Mankind, mankind uh, would talk that's a lot about testicular fortitude. That's right. That's right. Uh, or was it Cactus Jack? I can't remember. Yeah. Was it Dude Love? Anyway, I don't know. We'll we'll go Dude back and, and check love. the archives. <laughs> but but yeah, it, it definitely took some cojones to to make that call. And I think, you know, and that's that's something that I, I think some fans and sometimes I, I forget. Um, you know, I've I've long looked at, at baseball critically, but I think there's still something inside uh, all you know, former fans or current fans, however, you know, you want to um paint a, a journalist, but you want to see that that magical event. You want to have that moment, to be there for it. That's what makes baseball so beautiful. You go to the ballpark and you, you're you going to see something new. You're going to see something special. And maybe you hope it's that special thing that you can tell everybody about and 20 people are going to be standing around you waiting to hear that story because you were at that game. And over the course of a, of a season, the coach's job is to get their players across the finish line of that marathon. And when you have a game that, Hey, you have a no hitter through five innings, who cares? It's the 11th game of the season. And we're, we're coming off a, a playoff appearance. And this, this team has, you know, what it takes to be uh, a contender uh, in the 2010 season and, uh, and challenge against the other teams in the NL West. We, we got to work on some things right now. So this game and this no hitter is really not even all that important. So you're going to go out, come out in the stretch, and start shoving from there. 
And because it's, because it's not about the game, it's about the season. It's about working on things and making those adjustments. And that was the right call. And you're right. That could have just blown up in, in his face. It might've been something, you know, people didn't really remember that much because, Hey, it was only five innings. So, you know, there's still a long way to go on, you know, until you even get to the ninth, you know, keep in mind, the Padres have never thrown a no hitter. They're the only of the 30 teams to have never had a no hitter. And they've only had one no hitter go into the ninth. So they live in yeah, a there was a lot haven. That's weird. <laughs> That's right. So Marine layer, right. Um, and, and, and ultimately again, it, this all could have just blown up, uh, in, in their faces. It could have been just forgotten about because, Hey, when you walk six guys over the course of five innings, you know, it's, it, that's, that's not really what, a, uh, makes a no hitter. Uh, when you think about that, but again, when, when you look at the bigger high, picture, by the way, it's not like he was, you yeah, know, <laughs> just so weird. Yeah, that that was that was obviously the right call, and not just because he completed the no hitter, but because of what he did for the rest of the year. If he had an average year, or if he had a, an awful year, then say what you will and say, "Hey, this was a mistake," or there was a lot of other things going on. He got lucky, but I think it was was uh, you know uh, a harbinger, for lack of a better term, uh, in a positive way of things to come for Ubaldo's season by, by making that turnaround and say, Hey, we still have uh, a ways to go until, you know, you've kind of, you've got this perfected. You can go deep into the games, you can throw hard, but you have to make your pitches. You have to challenge these hitters and, you know, all the credit in the world goes to Bob Apodaca for making that call at that point in the game. As you mentioned, uh, Ubaldo Jimenez would go on to finish third in Cy Young voting in 2019. He finished with a 19 and eight record. Sorry, Manny. Uh, he finished. He pitched 33 games, four complete games, two shutouts, uh, 221.2 innings pitched. We may never see. Uh, <laughs> well, well, didn't didn't Herman Marquez do one like that? We we really shouldn't see that very often. Um, Let's see, where, where is it? He had an ERA of 288, a whip of 1155, and uh, he finished just behind Adam Wainwright and Roy Halladay, both of whom were 20 game winners. Roy Halladay won 21. Uh, again, apologies to Manny. They did both have ERAs lower than Ubaldo's 288. Adam Wainwright's was 242. Roy Halladay's was 244. It's hard to argue against either of those guys. Halladay had nine complete games and four complete game shutouts that year. I think he also threw at least one no hitter. Um, he threw a perfect. He threw a perfect game on yeah. May 29th. May 29th, 2010. I know because that was the night before I got married. So oh. uh, that that has a, a, a memorable place uh, in my life because one of the broadcasters for the Phillies, Tom McCarthy, uh, his brother is married to my cousin who was at the wedding. So that makes me not related to him at all. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> we talked at the wedding like, oh my gosh, your brother was calling the game. Yeah, we were texting. So that was super exciting. Um, and then flash forward actually a couple weeks later, coincidentally, on my honeymoon with my wife, uh, Armando Galarraga 
the events took place there. So wow. right at the beginning of, of my marriage and right there at the, <laughs> at the end of the honeymoon are these two, you know, uh, huge events. So you're right. Halliday had the perfect game. He would end up uh, throwing a no hitter that off season. And, you know, Jimenez also finished 23rd in MVP voting. So he, he did get um, overall, you know, seven uh, voting points. Um, he was one of three Rockies players to do that behind Cargo, as we said, who was third. And then Tulowitzki, who was actually fifth. So it's kind of interesting. Those I'm... guys probably split votes a little bit. And, oh, and the three sure. guys that were at, yeah, the three guys that were ahead of him, like we said, Vado Pujols, and then fourth was Adrian Gonzalez. Those are those guys are all first basemen. So, you know, you got the top outfielder that year was was Cargo, the top infielder and, and shortstop, of course, was Tulowitzki. So, you know, a disappointing year because of the win loss record and, um, yeah, and and what happened with them missing out in the playoffs. Apart, but there was dude. there was still a lot of a lot of lot to be happy about, and 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 this game is definitely one of those things. Um, and, and it is, you know, not to harp on things and, and not to take anything away from Halliday or Wainwright, but it is yet another reminder that, you know, four tenths of an ERA uh, seems to make the difference when a guy, you know, it, we know it doesn't go the other way. If, if everybody hitting at Coors Field, apparently gets about 60 to 70 points boost in their OPS than what Ubaldo Jimenez did in 2010, especially when you consider the dominance. You can take Freeland in 2018, and I'm not going to argue with you. Where is it? The 214 strikeouts. So Wainwright had 213. Halliday had 219. Um just an incredible, incredible. It's the most dominant pitching season in Rockies history. It really is too bad. Like, I don't, I, I can't say definitively. Those other guys were so good. And Roy Holiday, obvious Hall of Famer. Adam Wainwright, maybe borderline sneaky. I'm going to have to look at the numbers. We're going to have to take a look at that. My, my brain says just from having watched him pitch for so long that he's probably going to be close on the numbers. He was really good for a long time. But if if you apply just a little bit of the opposite Coors Field stuff, which, by the way, in this broadcast, there was a lot of talk about Coors Field during Todd Helton appearances, <laughs> a little bit of fantasizing about what he would have been like on the Boston Red Sox. Boy, did that feel familiar. <laughs> Let's get this superstar player to some other team. Um, That's interesting that you say you say about Wainwright because my initial instinct was like I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, but gotta look right. You gotta do uh, do due diligence there, and you got uh, hurt. I a immediately lot, thought, right? I don't, yes. See, that's the thing is that I knew he wasn't gonna, it wasn't a compiler, but you know, currently he, he stands at one sixty two and and ninety five. Again, we'll give Manny another shout out, but he was in the top three in Cy Young voting, you know, four times, and again, yeah, he. He he lost uh, about at least three seasons due to injury. So, uh, but when you when you think about the greats, even even last year, you know, uh, ERA just over four, but was was fourteen and ten, and um, you know was was solid at one point six WAR overall as a thirty seven year old. You're like, okay, yeah, you know what? He had a kind of yeah. a sneaky, sneaky good career for sure. I don't ever recall a time when Adam Wainwright was bad. I think that's sort of the thing, right? Sort of like Cliff Lee. Yeah, like, good point. 
You know, I don't, he wasn't always the best pitcher. In fact, he was maybe never the best pitcher, even in the national league um, with guys like Halliday and then Clayton Kershaw around, but he was good. But so it would have been nice to see some of the anti after all the years. And this was just a couple of years too. So, so 2010, you know, we're only three years removed from an 07 when Troy Tulowitzki wasn't rookie of the year and Matt Holliday wasn't MVP. And it was all about Coors Field. If you look at Matt Holliday's numbers and Jimmy Rollins' numbers, there's zero way to justify that MVP in 2007 without it being 100% about Coors Field. So for to only three years later, Ubaldo goes out and has a season like this, and they go, yeah, well, but these other guys' numbers are slightly better. One more win for Wainwright, two more wins for Holliday, and you're talking about 240 ERAs versus a 280 ERA. That's if you're applying any kind of Coors Field benefit, ah, I feel like the it's the one that got away, man. That's the that's the one that because even in in the Kyle Freeland year, I think he should have come in second, not fourth. Jacob Degrom's numbers were that much better. They were they were indisputably better. These felt these feel too close. Yeah. And, and and that's a decade ago too. So we know how much, you know, sabermetrics and analytics goes into voting nowadays and not for everybody. There are still those, you know, uh, old school holdouts who might just look at wins and losses. But the fact that both Halliday and Wainwright did get that 20 win mark, right? They all started 33 games. Yeah. You check that, yeah. you check off that box. Um, they all had more innings pitched than Jimenez. In fact, Halliday almost had a full um, inning per start better than Jimenez. Halliday was over seven and a half innings per start. Seven and a half. In- what? We will ne- we're just never going to see that. That's insane. That is insane. Yeah. 250 innings pitch. So, you know, when, when you look at it from those parameters, it's, I think it becomes hard for people to, to factor in, you know, how much Coors Field can tamp down numbers for pitchers and how much it can boost for hitters because, you know, the more we look into it, the more I think people are starting to understand. And we're talking about maybe 10% of baseball fans understand that Coors Field actually over the course of 162 game season in which half of your games are on the road in which breaking pitches look different. You know what? Coors Field does not actually help you at all. So yeah. it's it's just hard for hard for voters to to figure that out. And I also think it didn't help his case that he didn't he he didn't finish the season anywhere near like he didn't fall apart the way the rest of the team did, but he had some of his rougher outings in that last month uh, as the team was falling apart. Where you know the Phillies and Cardinals were going on to be powerhouses in the postseason. So I think if you I think you're right. If Ubaldo wins 20 games and gets into the postseason, there would have been a much bigger. I still don't think he gets it. I mean, I don't, but <laughs> I think I'd be. I'd be here saying he should have. And even the 20 game thing, like I'd, I'd not want it to matter, but the getting into the postseason, he was much stronger the first three or four months of the season than he was the last couple. Again, still good. And he had set the bar so damn high. Um, but I, I think not finishing strong. And, you know, didn't the Phillies go on? Was that the, no, Phillies won in 09. Uh, oh, they say they don't count the postseason. They went, they went these, back and, yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause yeah, the, the votes go in, um, 
uh, on the final uh, game of the season. So they won right. in 08 against the Rays, uh, 09 against the Yankees. Yankees ended up winning that in the first year of the new, new Yankee Stadium. Uh, like, like you said, it really was like, you know, what have you done for me lately? And yeah. you're right. He, he wasn't uh, as sharp. His his final start of the year was was really good. Um, you know, eight innings pitched, struck out 10 guys, only walked two. But, you know, before that, um, earlier in the month of September, six and a third innings pitched, four earned runs. Four innings pitched, four uh, five earned runs. Seven innings pitched, yeah. two earned runs. So it started getting better, but um, it just kind of wasn't, uh, what's really prescribed to kind of change some voters' minds and say, "Hey, this is legit." And I think some of that, some of the, um, you know, dynasty building, for for lack of a better term, goes on with voting is and thinking about like, well, Ubaldo Jimenez, you know, he might not be a future Hall of Fame guy. Um, let's let the right. Uh, the tie goes to the runner. So, hey. T- we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna break the tie and, and say you know a guy like Halliday who's been around who's been doing it for a while let's give it to him and you know you, you got to beat the champ to become the champ right uh, and at that point Halliday was was already a, a bona fide ace that's why right. you know he was with Philadelphia they already had given up so much uh, to acquire him and I think Wainwright was pretty much had established himself already up to that point so Jimenez was the new kid on the block and again it becomes about you know what have you done for me lately so. Halliday, interestingly enough, as I go back and look at his September stats, they really weren't that much better. Um, they were consistent. He still kept going seven innings pitched, uh, but his final start was a, a nine-inning shutout, struck out six guys and did not walk a batter to go into the playoffs. So even even literally the yeah. last start could have been something that, that swayed a couple voters. Yeah, yeah, could have been. But uh, th- this will be... Uh, a game and a day that Rockies fans who experienced it will never forget. And I'm glad that you got to experience the totality of it because sometimes, you know, no hitters are great, but sometimes to go back and like watch every pitch of one, uh, yeah, it isn't all that entertaining. And there was a lot in this game. <laughs> there was, there was a lot to pay attention to. Um, so I'm glad that we were able to do this one and that you were able to experience it. And some of those moments were able to kind of take you off guard in it and it feel like, and, and I hope other people, you know, if you haven't watched it, if you're a, a newcomer to Rockies fandom, you come, you go back and watch some of these with us, I believe on the docket right now, we've got on Wednesday uh, at 3 PM, kind of a tough time slot. I know it's just what we've got for now. Cause, uh, well, Major League Baseball didn't make this stuff available until uh, more recently where the NBA and the NHL did. So those guys got the sort of prime time slot. So at least for this week, it's going to be Wednesday and Friday at 3 p.m. Uh, Mountain Time. We'll be live tweeting on Wednesday, the Nolan Arenado walk-off cycle on Father's Day uh, from 2017. And on Friday, the very first game of that season, you may remember it as the Major League debut of a shortstop named Trevor Story. Uh, Those are going to be a lot of fun, these games. So if you haven't seen those games before, you've probably seen those ones. They should be fun uh, to relive. There are a few others that are a little bit older we may have a chance to go back and do. We're still figuring out a, a few other things that... 
uh, we've got coming your way in terms of these classic rewind watches. We'll let you know what the plan is. But for now, that's what we're doing uh, this week. Patrick, any final thoughts on any of that or the Ubaldo game or any anything at all? Any extra innings, final thoughts? What do you got? <laughs> Yeah, it it was really neat. Like you said, you were kind of excited to to see my reaction, and and I didn't know what what to expect because you know all of these events, you know, I I know from from covering the team, but to to many degrees, they're just you know sentences that people have shared with me or things that I've read about, right? But for to watch this game you know, the events jumped off the page quite literally. Now I could visually see these things and imagine Turner Field more exactly and and see Nate McLeod out in, in center field and, and Chipper Jones at third base. So it really comes to, to light. And for, you know, the fact that we, we, we probably still, even in this pandemic, have people moving to Denver because, you know, frankly, you don't plan on moving, you know, a week in advance. So there's still going to be new Rockies fans and, and new Colorado sports fans coming out. And you want to know the, the history of your team. And that's kind of one of the cool things about the Rockies is they have a younger history, right? It's, it's still, still, you know, 27, 28 seasons that you're, you got to learn about player acquisition and transactions uh, and, and the history of the team, but it allows a much easier entry point to try to, you know, swallow all of it, try to, to encompass every single event that has gone down. And this game was one of those events that I feel now, like kind of, I was there. Like I went, uh, I, I was sitting next to doc Brown in the DeLorean. We went back, we watched this game. Uh, I texted you I was like, Oh man, you ditch class for this one. Sweet. And it kind of, <laughs> that's how it happened. And I think this is kind of a, almost a hallmark episode of the podcast that we can point people to and say, Hey, you want to hear about the all time greatest games? Well, after you watch it, go listen to our breakdown. And that's what it's going to be for the next couple of weeks for these DNVR watches that we do. So we want you to participate in that and, uh, and, and reach out to us on Twitter. And it's, it was, it was a really good time. I I can't wait for Wednesday already. Yeah. A hundred percent. And we are still doing Ken Burns, PBS baseball, Tuesdays and Thursdays. So just like the actual sport, you know, it was important for us. We understand that you baseball fans need your baseball every day. As Bud Black is fond of saying, Drew, it's an everyday sport and he's an everyday player. What do everyday players do, Patrick? They play every day. (laughs) And uh, DNVR Rockies, Fans, subscribers, listeners, whatever whatever word you prefer, members of our little corner of the universe here. You're everyday players. And so we're going to be giving you as much baseball every single day as we can. Use the hashtag DNVR Watches if you want to play along uh, with us or if you watch after the fact, you can still use it. Hit us up, uh, tag us with yourself, drinking some Breck brews and watching the old games or watching the documentary and... Uh, we're going to keep doing our best to have high spirits and do well while being safe through this uh, period in in time. So if you want to make sure you don't miss any of that, follow everybody on social media. I'm at Drew Creaseman, at Patrick D. Lyons over there. We got at DNVR underscore Rockies. Hey, give the gaming channel a try. Even if you're a gamer or even if you're not, you know, there's going to be... <laughs> 
there's going to be at least be competition on there. Now's the time to get into video gaming if you if you haven't been. And I'm proud of the work that we've done over there and setting up a Twitch channel and giving another place for all of you to congregate and talk about sports and and video games and whatever you want to talk about and and not just be bored to tears uh, during this time and and not feel the need to go out because we all need to be smart and hashtag stay at home. So on that note, uh, thank you for listening. Make sure you're subscribed to everything. If it is within your means, please help out all of our sponsors during this time. Uh, they really need your help. Uh, you know them well. Uh, drink that Breck brew, eat them bojos, get manscaped, uh, and check out Mile High Green Cross. For Patrick Lyons, I've been Drew Creaseman. I hope you will all continue to be absolutely awesome. And until next time, we will see you at the ballpark.